gardeners, farmers, compost enthusiasts, and growers. Welcome to The Healthy Garden, the show where soil is important and growing a healthier world is job one. Hello and welcome to episode number 45 of The Healthy Garden podcast, The Five Keys to True Organic Gardening. I hope that all of you in the States had a happy Thanksgiving. And for those around the world, blessings and gratitude to all of you as well. We had a very odd Thanksgiving here in California as our governor was pushing for the big clampdown. I don't really think that that happened. I saw lots of cars all over our neighborhood, meaning that people were celebrating this day of gratitude and giving with friends and family. I know we did. The thing that I must say that I was most grateful for was Norma, our kids, my relationship with God, and the beautiful new orchard that we just planted. A couple of weeks back, we put an amazing orchard in on the hillside, including the cherimoyas that we've nurtured from cuttings. Grandma's cherimoya that we transplanted after a great van ride with Uncle Art, a rare avocado, and some precious heirloom trees that we got from trees of antiquity. I've had so much fun working on that orchard with Norma and the guys. My favorite memory so far out there was Norma staking the trees with her super top secret staking method just before a big wind episode ripped through our mountain. It lasted for days, but those gorgeous young trees held fast with Norma staking, and now they've started to establish, and I see that the Granny Smith is starting to take off. It's amazing. The holiday break for us was good. It was a good time to look at some of the other areas of the garden that we needed to complete. We got some fantastic garden inspiration just by hanging out in the garden and doing nothing. Now that is what I call a holiday. Since we are creating some new garden areas at our place, I was thinking about how we start each spot by putting one foot in front of the other and by using our tried and true, true organic protocols. By sticking with this recipe, Norma and I have created many organic orchards, gardens, grows, and farms that have had prolific growth and epic health. Health is paramount to growing in a true organic garden, and that is the journey that we are going to go on this episode. Hi, it's Norma. This year in April, Randy and I ordered a dozen bare root fruit trees from Trees of Antiquity. They sell heirloom fruit trees that are varieties even from the 1500s. They arrived in a beautiful long box 
and we immediately watered the roots and potted them up into five-gallon containers filled with baby boo's potting soil from Malibu compost. We then drenched them with Malibu compost's compost tea for fruits, vegetables, and tomatoes every month. We have now transplanted them into the ground using a 50-50 mix of our native soil and Boo's Blend Biodynamic Compost from Malibu Compost. They're over seven feet tall now and only eight months old. For your organic and heirloom fruit trees, go to treesofantiquity.com. And for your organic and non-GMO and farm-made soil products, go to malibucompost.com. So I don't normally do this, but because there's so much confusion around Thanksgiving and what does it mean and why is it important, there's a story that I had read uh, several years ago in a magazine, and I really think it's a great story. And it's by a guy named Andrew Amelink. And what I love about it is that it just... It has a very gardening and food perspective. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this story. I'll comment a little bit, but I really love this. The pilgrims had no idea how to farm here. Luckily, they had the Native Americans. That's the title of the article. New England soil isn't quite the same as England's. After arriving in Massachusetts Bay in November 1620, following a harrowing, 66-day Atlantic crossing, the 105 pilgrims spent their first winter aboard their ship, the Mayflower. So first of all, I just want to comment. Think about arriving here. You're 500 miles off course. It's November in Massachusetts. There's no lodging, no people, no hotels, no nothing. So let's think about that for what, how we live today and what are we willing to do. And these guys left, they're separatists, so they wanted to have, they wanted to separate from the Church of England and they wanted religious freedom. They were willing to die. Half the people on that ship, on the ships there, died as they were coming to the new world. So they spent their first winter aboard their ship because they had nowhere else to go and it was cold. So imagine that. Just imagine that. I don't know if you guys have ever fished or been out deep sea or been out on a boat. Even in, even in places that's not biting cold, you still get cold on a boat. It's likely that we wouldn't be celebrating Thanksgiving today at all, if not for a saintly Native American named Tisquantum, also called Squanto, a member of the Pawtuxet tribe who spoke English and taught the colonists 
how to plant native crops like corn, how to tap the maple trees for sap and fish in the bay. If he hadn't befriended the pilgrims, it's possible they would have perished before their first harvest of the fall of 1621. As it was, around half of the passengers and crew died their first winter in the New World. Saintly is the only way to describe Squanto. He learned English after being kidnapped with other members of his tribe by an English sea captain named Thomas Hunt in 1614 and sold into slavery in Spain before he was able to make his way to England. From there, Squanto was able to secure passage back to Massachusetts in 1619, only to find that his tribe had been decimated by smallpox, tuberculosis, or possibly some other disease contracted through their contact with Europeans. Some folks might not have taken too kindly to the English after such rough treatment. Squanto apparently didn't hold a grudge since he helped forge an alliance between the pilgrims and a local tribe, the Wampanoag, another way in which he helped prop up the shaky colony. These skilled Native American farmers knew how to get the most out of the poor coastal soil and taught the pilgrims to do the same. Unlike the soil of southern England, which is deep, nutrient-rich, loamy, and easy to hand-till, the soil in coastal Massachusetts is shallow, sandy and stony, making it hard to work by hand. And this is according to the Soil Science Society of America. Before learning the best crops to grow in their new home, the pilgrims would have probably tried and failed to grow rye, barley, and wheat and a variety of English garden vegetables, according to soil scientist Tom Sauer, who is with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service. The Wampanoag grew corn, squash, and beans, crops known as the Three Sisters that make a potent growing team, especially in poor, sandy soil that doesn't retain nutrients or water. The three plants work well together to create fertile soil. Beans are nitrogen fixers, pulling nitrogen from the air and with the help of the soil microbes, turning the nitrogen into plant food. The corn provides the beans a support on which to grow, and the squash helps in water retention and with weed control. The Wampanoag also used wood ash and fish as plant fertilizers. Sauer says wood ash would have been a relatively concentrated nutrient source that contains calcium, which acts as a liming agent to raise the pH level. It also contains potassium and smaller amounts of phosphorus and other nutrients. Since the yields weren't very high, applying wood ash would probably have replaced quite a lot of the potassium and phosphorus removed from the crop, Sauer tells the modern farmer in an email. Using fish as a fertilizer was a common practice by many of the native peoples of the East Coast and provided nutrients and amino acids to help in plant growth according to tradition. I know back where the Lenape Indians and the Catawba tribe, which of which uh, my family has ties to back in New Jersey, I know that they used eels. They fished eels and they used eels in their um, soil fertilization. And in fact, there are places where they were digging subways and things like that. And they found weirs where there was 
waterways that they had built underground and that they had had different hieroglyphics on there with eels and different fish that show how these things were used in fertilization. It's an amazing thing when you think about landing at a place, having someone who could have easily just wanted to kill you for what your people had done to him. And the backside of the story that no one talks about is there were Franciscan monks that had bought him out of slavery, helped educate him, and then got him on a boat and got him back home. And then he comes home and he finds that his tribe is mostly gone, wiped out from disease. But what does he do? He doesn't hate them. He doesn't try to kill them. What he does is help them. It's pretty amazing. Using fish as a fertilizer was a common practice by many of the native people of the East Coast and provided nutrients and amino acids. Fish fertilizer, albeit in a liquid form, is still in use today. Sour, on the other hand, doesn't believe fish is a great plant nutrient source, but says that it would have helped the soil somewhat since any organic material will release some nutrients when it decomposes. It may have also added organic matter that helped retain water near the seed, so maybe it was more than just a nutrient source. Either way, the Native Americans' farming practices help save pilgrims from starving to death. In November 1621, the pilgrims and the Wampanoag celebrated the colonists' first successful corn harvest. The festivities lasted three days and included a bounty from both field and sea, but unlike today's typical Thanksgiving, there was no pumpkin pie. Obviously, ovens weren't yet a thing, and sugar was in short supply. There was lobster, goose, and venison, along with the new crops that the English had learned to grow thanks to the original inhabitants of Massachusetts. ago, I used to use the city compost on my large raised bed that I had in my community garden. I noticed that there was white ash throughout and that much of the quote-unquote compost was noticeably wood as well as bits of plastic. I started waking up to the reality that city compost was garbage, partly composted garbage from all of our homes, some toxic and others not. So I looked elsewhere and found Malibu compost. 
The first time I used them was at a school garden that I was teaching at, and it was the only thing that grew the kids' plants after only five days. If you want a true organic compost that is real and non-GMO, make your own with your own organic kitchen scraps and leaf litter, or go to malibucompost.com and get your Booze Blend Biodynamic Compost today. organic gardening is different than any type of gardening that you've ever done. For me, it's the only way to garden ever. The five keys to true organic gardening are, and remember guys, when we started this whole deal, like years ago, I mean, I'm telling you, I've, I've talked about it on the show before. There wasn't any organic when I started. There was no organic gardening. It's blossomed into this whole giant thing. And you see everywhere people labeling and putting stuff on bags. Organic, 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 schmorganic. Okay? We're talking about true organic. So we've learned the lessons of how to actually grow this way. So here are the keys for us. And they've worked. So hopefully you can take some of these. Hopefully you'll take all of them. And you'll do a reset. We talk about the great reset that's happening right now. Let's do a great reset in our gardens, in our hearts. And why don't we have give a big you-know-what to all the big global economists, global businesses, global corporations, the politicians, all of them. Turn off your TV, tune into the garden, tune into the soil, and here are your five keys to true organic gardening. One, attitude. This is easier said than done. You need to adopt a very straightforward view and outlook when it comes to growing true organic before you ever put your hands in the soil, the true organic gardener and farmer must be steadfast in their belief that no synthetic, no faux organic, no just this once during this pest outbreak am I going to spray poison in my garden. It is forming a relationship, a bond with you and your garden, especially with the microbes in your garden who are going to do all of the heavy lifting in your soil management with the other bugs, birds, and bees who are going to aerate, pollinate, and stand guard over your garden for years to come. The true organic attitude also must include an attitude of gratitude for the plot of land that you have been given stewardship over and for all of the miracles that you will be a party to in growing the way that God intended. 
This attitude will permeate everything in your life. Your attitude of being a true organic gardener changes you forever from a person who can accept the lies that have permeated the gardening and farming world for years to a person who must be in the truth when it comes to gardening, growing, tending, harvesting, managing, to even what you put in your body for nourishment. Attitude is the first key because without it, you will never be a true organic gardener, farmer, or grower because you will always be a pawn to big ag, big chem, big oil, and big pharma. How I changed my attitude was through meditation and prayer, as well as being open to the reality that I did not know how to grow cleanly and safely on my land. I had to face the truth that so many of the things that I took as gardening truths were simply not true. The biggest non-truth that I found had to do with our next key, health, soil health, number two. This is where life sustenance for us begins on this planet. Without healthy soil, we've got nothing. No plants, no bugs, no birds, no bees, nada. This is the area where gardeners mostly get it wrong. They've been told by the, quote, experts, the hat people, the gardeners, in books, on social media, and through the famous garden lifestyle personalities, all of the wrong ways to tend and care for their most precious asset in the garden, the soil. The first thing that I always do in my classes is ask, how many of you are organic gardeners? This is the first confusing point of my class, the opening question. The second is, how many of you care more about your plants than your soil? Usually everyone but a few raise their hands. Which is good, because I tell them if they all raised their hands, then I was going to leave because they were all liars. And there is no teaching the liars club. The problem with soil begins for many at the soil yard. They are buying all of these expensive, in quotes, plants and fertilizers. Containers, which are costly, hoses, a garden hat, seeds, gardening books, trellises, wood for the raised beds. The cost of gardening is real. I feel your pain. Not. Because all of that crap is worthless if you don't have something healthy to grow in. But what do most people do? They pick up the cheapest bag in the soil yard. I'll take two of these buy three, get one free deals on the potting soil. That should fill my raised beds, right? Sure, it'll fill your beds with garbage. My other favorite is I'm getting the free compost or local stuff from our recycling, in quotes, facility. You get a lot of compost for cheap. Yeah, you do, because they got it for free and it's full of pesticides and herbicides and it's not finished. Why? 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 
would anyone want to grow in garbage filled with poisons? Why? Is there no common sense left on this planet? The other common mistake is to ask the person at the nursery, what is the best organic soil? This is a problem at all nurseries, especially at the big boxes. The stock person at the store is going to 99% of the time tell you, well, this one is organic and it's two bucks cheaper than the other organic bags. I'd go with that one. I'd go with that one. You don't say. Are you an organic gardener? Have you ever grown in that mix? Do you even know what's in it? But the customer, you, me, all of us, the gardener, will generally go along with the recommendation from someone not qualified to give you that recommendation. The last scenario is that you saw this logo or package of compost or potting soil on the Garden Guru's website, or they mentioned it on their podcast or YouTube channel. Well, just remember, that's how they get paid, sponsorship. I mean, I've seen experts hawking bagged human waste compost that most people don't even know is human waste compost. Yuck. Look it up. It's out there. It starts with an M. Please, people, consider your sources and if your experts are really true organic gardeners, farmers, and growers. Grow in real, true organic potting soil. Top dress frequently with real, true organic compost. Compost in the spring and fall with real, true organic compost. Doing this will help feed your microbes will give you a good, clean source of nutrient for your plants from the organic matter that the larger soil animals will poop out and it will create a stable, natural, and healthy environment for you to grow in, to grow your soil. Remember, don't buy the cheap stuff. It's no bueno. No bueno. Number three. Labels. Read the labels. When growing true organic, you need to keep the chemicals and synthetics out of your garden. That is first and foremost, and a very basic premise and principle for organic gardening. No pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides. If you see any type of chemical on the label as an active ingredient... Move on. This is not for your true organic garden. The other trick is to scout the label for the animal byproducts. These are bone meal, blood meal, and feather meal. They all come from rendering plants, and they all come from animals who were raised in CAFO environments. CAFO means concentrated animal feeding operation. The EPA, yes, those guys, defines a CAFO as an agricultural enterprise where animals are kept and raised in confined situations. CAFOs congregate animals, feed, manure, and urine, dead animals, and production operations on a small, 
land area. Feed is bought to the animals rather than the animals grazing or otherwise seeking feed in pastures, fields, or on rangeland. There are approximately 450,000 CAFOs in the United States. Think about where this stuff is coming from. Think about for one second, go back to how the animals are living before they're slaughtered. The byproducts from these animals are not for use in a true organic garden. The animals at CAFOS are fed GMO feedstocks, corn, soy, and alfalfa. These are all sprayed with herbicide as they are Roundup ready. Yes, that Roundup. It doesn't break down in composting or in your soil for a very, very long time. And it is taken up into your plants during nutrient cycling or feeding. These toxins are prevalent in the soft tissue of plants, especially leafy green foods. Therefore, these two are no bueno. No bueno. You'll also want to stay away from some of the other natural, in quotes, items such as cottonseed meal. This crop is sprayed heavily with pesticide and are also huge toxins to the garden when applied. Remember, if you are going to buy alfalfa meal or soy meal, they must be certified organic and non-GMO. Otherwise, you are getting the Roundup Ready variety. The same goes for many worm castings. Try to find where the worm castings come from and what the worms are fed. Many of the commercial worm facilities use cardboard, which has chemicals in its adhesive, vegetable waste from conventional ag, which is filled with pesticide residue. Know your sources. This is critical for all of your purchases in the True Organic Garden. We don't want to introduce chemicals and poisons into the soil on purpose or by accident. These toxins can kill off biology, the microbes, and do great harm to the food you eat and the plants that you are trying to lovingly care for. Number four, nature. Work with nature. This is another critical part of organic gardening that is overlooked but must be considered when growing a true organic garden. What is your weather like? What are your soil temps? Yes, you need to know soil temps. This is critical so that you know how the microbes are going to function and multiply in your garden. What is the natural water condition from rain, frost, snow, fog, dew? Is your garden water stressed from too much water? Or water stressed from too little water? Is your soil and garden a breeding ground for fungal disease? This can all be answered by studying the natural conditions of your farm, yard, or growing area. Is it windy? I'll go back to the wind episode that we had with our new fruit trees in the orchard. I'm a weather junkie. 
We knew we get weather alerts on our phones. We knew we were going to have 40 to 60 mile per hour winds for up to three to four days when we went out there and staked the trees. Well, when Norma went out there and staked the trees and I shot some fabulous pictures. Will everything blow away or get wind burned? A lot of times people see wind burn. They don't even realize that that's what they're looking at. It's not a deficiency. It's burn. Do I have a good natural breeze that will benefit my plants in terms of defending against pests and disease? This may seem simple or even ridiculous, but just think about planting an orchard in the wrong spot. Maybe it could be the right spot if you created a windbreak with hedging or fencing or evergreen trees. You can shift the space. One of my favorite things to consider regarding nature in the garden is wildlife. Am I going to get eaten out of house and home by rats, birds, gophers, coyotes, bad neighbors? Can you put up an owl box to go after the rats and gophers? Will your dog keep the bad neighbors and coyotes out? By the way, coyotes, if they're hungry, will come into your yard and strip your fruit trees of stone fruits. I've had it done to me while my Great Danes were sleeping. Trust me. It's something to get up before the sun comes up, look out, see your trees shaking, and realize, oh, they're shaking because there's a pack of coyotes in my yard eating my fruit trees while my Great Danes slept calmly and peacefully in their very tough environment on pillows. Number five, protocols. Use true organic protocols. This is the key to long-term success. Use only true organic protocols when tending, growing, and maintaining your garden. This means to use compost as your main soil builder. Use the healthy leaf litter on your property as mulch. Grow cover crops where appropriate. Make compost. Set up a compost bin and use all of your green waste. This helps close the loop of your garden and makes it really, truly organic because you are controlling the inputs in your yard that go into your compost pile and therefore you know that your compost is true organic. And if you need more compost, only with a capital O, N-L-Y, use real, true, organic compost that's fully finished, done, loaded with biology, with nutrient, with mineral. Don't buy the cheap stuff that looks like wood. Buy the real stuff if you need to augment Along that same line, set up a worm bin. The same thing here. You are controlling the inputs. Worms thrive in beds that are started with real, true, organic compost. They love it. We've had incredible success 
starting worm bins with our finished compost. Think about the quality of the castings and the vermicompost that you're going to get from your own worm beds versus conventional commercial junk. And I feel sorry for the worms, and I feel sorry for the, for the cows and caffos. I, f- I feel sorry for these animals. Become proficient in using and applying compost teas. I cannot stress this enough. They are literally the best way to feed the biology of your soil and to add nutrient and mineral in between composting. Learn how to introduce other microbial inoculants to your soil, such as a drench of a microbial inoculant. Doing this in conjunction with your compost tea regimen can really bolster a healthy garden. You can also do the occasional drench of liquid kelp or fish. Make sure that they are sourced from clean, safe, healthy sources. No farm fish, okay? Set up a solid IPM, Integrated Pest Management Program, using beneficial insects and soil animals that will 100% eliminate the need for pesticides and faux organic pesticides. There's a lot of those out there. That's it, gardening gang. Simple, but not easy. If you want more detail, we go over many of these items in detail. In previous episodes, check them out, share them with your friends. You can also ask questions on our Instagram or Facebook pages. The only way to be a true organic gardener is to be true organic and follow the five keys to true organic gardening. That concludes this episode of the Healthy Garden Podcast. Please post your questions on the Healthy Garden Podcast pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week to learn more about how you can free yourself from the chemical and synthetic trap that's been set to keep you from growing a true, organic, and healthy garden. Until then, happy and healthy gardening.